0: The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org.
1: The reading of God's word. Scripture reading this morning is from Esther 3 verses 1 through 5. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when he spoke to them day after day, he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar.
0: Then Haman Haman said to to king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad, and depressed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. The laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If they do, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries.
2: So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. <clears throat> then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign.
3: Well, good morning. A brilliant reading. Thank you all so much. My name is Ben, and I'm on staff here at Restoration, um, and you could be anywhere this morning, and you're here, and we are uh, glad to have you here and also online if you're joining us online Um, We're walking through the book of Esther, it's an Old Testament book, and it's one book that actually never says the word God. Uh, It never mentions God, uh, it never talks about him explicitly, but yet we see in these little scenes what God is up to, and this is a scene that it seems like you wonder, what is he up to? Um, And maybe that's a season of life you're in right now, and for that reason I'm glad Uh, you are here. I wanna begin this morning by talking about a show that's uh, been popular, it's recently released, it's called Ted Lasso. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it to all audiences, but um, the premise of it, I won't give it away and spoil it, but the premise of it is this, uh, an EPL, English Premier League soccer team, Uh, one of the greatest leagues, arguably, in the entire world of the sport, has hired Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso is an American football coach. He's never played soccer, uh, never coached soccer. He doesn't know the rules to soccer. And now he's tasked to go coach some of the best players in the world. Uh, Now, why, right? Why does this happen? It's because the owner of this EPL, this English Premier League team, has gone through a divorce recently. And in the settlement, she has become the full owner of the team. And to get back at her ex-husband, someone who loved that team, she will crash and burn it. Uh, It's amazing to see uh, that she hires this uh, lovable and kind-hearted and dim-witted coach uh, to coach the team. And it's amazing to see in the name of revenge and pride what someone will do to exact revenge. And that's exactly what we see here in esther 3. in the name of revenge and in the name of pride what haman will do we'll talk about it and and unpack it in the name of revenge and exacting revenge Uh, so this morning we're looking at the the physiology uh, of self-pride the last time i took a science class was senior year in high school um, and it was anatomy and physiology, so it's fresh on my mind. Uh, anatomy and physiology are the two main categories in life science. Anatomy is the structure of things, right? You have bones and, and muscles, and they're structured away. Um, the other side, the, the other main category of life science is physiology. And it's how things function, how they work. And Esther 3 is a, a case study of how pride how self-pride functions. We can look at pride and pretty easily say that's pride, but the way sometimes it can be slippery and new and hard to nail down is when it functions in a certain way that it's hard to really name. And we'll see how pride functions this morning in three ways that we see in this chapter. We see first the offensibility of pride. Second, the plan to protect self pride. And third, uh, the quenching of self pride. So as we study God's word, let's pray as we begin. Lord, you do know us. You know what brought us here. You know what we are living in light of with excitement and hope with a new year. And you know what disenchantment. Uh, is riddling our life now. You know uh, what dreams we have. You know what failed dreams uh, lie in a grave of ours. You know so much. And this morning, Lord, as we talk about pride, uh, as the prideful person talks about pride, would you remind us, Holy Spirit, what you do so well, which is the finished work of Christ is better than the word that we have to say about ourselves. Holy Spirit, make that true of us today and remind us that that's the good news. We pray this in his name, in the name of Christ, amen. So first, we'll look at the, the offensibility of pride. The, the opening words of this chapter says, after these things, we're picking up in the third chapter, so what is taking place? Uh, what has um, gone before us? Uh, in chapter one, we see the people of Israel are in exile. What does that mean? It means they're not in their homeland, they're in a foreign land. And right now they're in the land in the kingdom of Persia. And in fact, they're in the capital city of Persia, which is Susa. And in capital cities, there are kings. And this king uh, is a bit of a self-absorbed drunken king. And we'll see throughout the entire story uh, this come to bear. But this self-absorbed drunken king in chapter one threw a party for himself. And it's days long, and towards the end of the party, he uh, invites his wife, um, King v- Queen Vashti, to come and join the party and show off her beauty, and she says no. So this king uh, deposes his wife and offers an edict and a decree for the whole entire kingdom. In chapter 2, uh, we see uh, he has to replace this queen, and so he, what he does is he has a beauty contest And he gathers all the beautiful women from all over the kingdom. Enter Mordecai and Esther. Um, Mordecai is the uncle of Esther, and they're both Jews. And they come, and they see that uh, Esther is beautiful, and they say, come, enter this beauty contest. And Mordecai stands by as they take her to enter the contest. And the only thing he tells her is, just don't tell her, don't tell them that you're a Jew. And she doesn't. And she actually ends up winning this beauty contest. And so she's now the queen of the Persian kingdom. And as this newly dubbed queen, her uncle is outside the king's gates and he hears the king's official, two of them, talk about how they're going to kill the king. And Mordecai hears it and tells his niece, the newly dubbed queen, hey, these two guys are going to kill your new husband. And so she tells the king, they find out that it's actually true. and, And the king Uh, honors Mordecai for saving his life. And now we pick up in chapter three where it says, after those things, after Mordecai has been the hero, King Asusurus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatheta, and advanced him and set his throne above all officials who were with him. After Mordecai has saved the king and, and been the hero, enter a new character, Haman this protagonist, or this antagonist, excuse me. This person gets promoted over this virtuous character of Haman, and we can read on. Starting in, in verse two, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Asusurus. Haman, newly promoted, as an Agagite. Mordecai, a Jew, doesn't bow down to this newly promoted official. Why? Um, let's take a moment and look at the historical background Agagite Haman Mordecai Jew back in the history of uh, the people of Israel they left as the, uh, slaves in Egypt and God delivered them and he was taking them to the promised land and as you know they left uh, Israel or excuse me Egypt and they went through the Red Sea and God delivered them and on the other side of the Red Sea we see a story in Exodus 17 how they're tired and they're walking in the wilderness as God leads them, and someone comes to attack them, someone called the Amalekites. The king of the Amalekites was King Agag. King Agag wants to destroy the Israelites. What is Haman? He's an Agagite. What is Mordecai? He's a Jew. These are old foes meeting in a new generation. King Agag wants to kill the newly exodus uh, people of Israel. And we see here Haman wants to kill Mordecai, this Jew, and all of his people. Same story, uh, new generation. Haman is filled with fury because this old enemy of his won't bow down uh, to him. Now we think Mordecai, that's, that's bold action, that's rebellious, good for you for being with conviction. And while that might be true, it's probably not. And here's why. Uh, Mordecai worked for the king, and he bowed down to the king. And Mordecai told his niece, if we remember, not to tell the people that she was a Jew. And here Mordecai is, not bowing down to a certain official, and he's saying that he's a Jew, right? It's, it's kind of this uh, relativistic terms he's living by. We see he's picking and choosing. But the point we see here is that Haman acts in light of that with fury. He's furious. This Jew won't bow down to him, but Haman's furious because the honor that he demands isn't given to him. He doesn't get what his own self-pride wants, and in fact, in light of that uh, self-importance, he is not being acknowledged and therefore is offended. A prideful person is an offendable person. Notice, uh, I didn't say that in reverse. Uh, A quick caveat, being offended doesn't make you a prideful person automatically. Uh, right, there are things that been, are wrong, and we have to call them wrong. And you can be offended by that because they're wrong. That doesn't mean you're prideful. But if you are prideful, you are offended because you have thinking that you are the most important person in the room. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, defines pride like this. Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. So if if it's looking at the self all the time, uh, always looking at the self ruthlessly, sleeplessly, how does it really look? And there's two forms of pride. There's the superiority pride that we can think of easily, right? People think they are the greatest. When they walk into a room, they're looking at themselves, therefore everyone else should be looking at them too. But there's the other side of pride also, on the other side of the spectrum, which is this. There's the inferiority pride. That you're so looking at yourself in a consuming way that you compare yourself to everyone else and you'll never be good enough because you look at yourself and you know you can't hold up in comparison. Uh, Later on in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes about these two kinds of prides. Screwtape Letters is a book that uh, is uh, letters between a senior demon and a junior demon. And they talk about how to bring dismay to uh, a human being, the patient, they call it. And so if you understand that, it makes sense. And and these junior and senior demons call the enemy uh, God. Uh, So with that in mind, here's what C.S. Lewis says. You must conceal from your patient, the human being, the real nature of humility. Let him think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a low opinion of his own talents and character. To thwart the enemy, God, we must consider his aims. He wants to bring your man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in that fact without being any more or less glad having done it than if, than if it had been done by another. Our enemy, God, you see, wants to turn the man's attentions from self altogether toward him and the man's neighbor. Remember, both vain glory and self-contempt equally keep the mind on the self. Both can be, therefore, the starting point for some wonderful contempt of other selves, other people, cynicism, and cruelty. It says, both vainglory and self-contempt can equally keep the mind on the self. How can it be? It's because we view ourselves as so important that we keep our eyes on ourselves, whether we're high and superior or we're low and inferior. And God never meant us to sit alone with our hubris and self-importance, and he also never meant us to sit alone with our own failures and self-contempt. Never. Never. And yet, when our pride is offended, we are being told we are not actually who we say we are. Therefore, a great offense has occurred. The the parts of our lives that are most offendable are often the prideful parts of our lives. And the prideful parts of our lives are often the areas where we say about ourselves who we think we are. Where do you feel offense rise up in you because a self-given identity is not reinforced by everyone else? Where do you feel the offense and the offendability of self-pride? For Haman, it wasn't even that he hated the Jews, though he did, it was an enemy, and it historically is true. It's that he loved himself more than he hated his enemy, therefore, when he doesn't get the love that he thinks he deserves, he's going to do away with his opponent, which is what we see our second idea, the plan to protect self-pride. He goes and he talks about uh, taking out and wiping out all the people. Uh, And this insidious, uh, genocidal idea actually begins to happen. And he goes and he and his buddies, they cast lots, they cast pure uh, and they cast lots to see when is this gonna take place, actually, when am I gonna kill the people who are against me, that won't bow down to me, that are my historic enemy, and so he cast lots, and they make the plan, and then he goes to the king, and he says this in verse eight, it says, then Haman said to king of there is a, p- a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I put, will put 10,000 talents of silver in the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it in the king's treasury. Haman's injured pride is so the case that he goes to the king And what does he do? He says to the king, there's a people who, they don't play by your rules. And actually, it's not good for them to be around. It's not good for you for them to be around. Let's destroy them. What is that move? In his injured pride, he slanders his opponents. In addition to that, we see later on, he says, if you destroy them, I'll I'll, I'll give you 10,000 talents. I'll, I'll give you money. It's a profit to you to kill them. Now, 10,000 talents in that day was like two-thirds of the annual revenue for the whole entire kingdom. And at that time, they were hard-pressed. The treasury was low. The Some bad ventures happened. And so this was a lot of money. And we see Haman not just give slanderous words to his opponent, but he will fork over personal payments to someone who will receive it just to make his injured pride recover. Now, uh, these are the two ways that Haman operates. This is his plan to protect his own self-pride. Slander and personal payments. Let's take a moment and pause. One thing that Frederick Nietzsche said, the philosopher, he says, beware when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster and let me ask a question of us today right now, this moment, Uh, in uh, our most unhealthy moments, mine, yours, what is the chess piece that you play uh, to exact revenge and to make sure you make it out on top because someone has injured your pride? Is it slanderous words? A a way that you talk uh, to your boss at work about your coworker and the way they have royally screwed up. Or or the way you talk to a friend group about a friend who's not there about how petty they are, how divisive they are. Or maybe you talk to another about what your spouse said to you and can you believe that they have the nerve. Slanderous words are employed by an injured pride. But on top of that, there's more. There's another chess piece that we see uh, that we can play, and it's this. It's that we pay personal amounts to make sure vengeance is ours. There's retribution. Now, if I said, um, if you saw someone pay money to have someone killed, you can obviously point your finger at that. That's plain. And it may not be real financial money that currency of of dollars. But you may, in an injured pride, and I, in an injured pride, pay a currency that gets the job done, and it's the currency of social capital to demean someone, to make them be put in their place, Or, or maybe it's a corporate influence. It's the currency of corporate influence where you make sure someone is demoted. As you climb the ladder, they are falling down it. And maybe it's not even something, it's actually nothing. You use the currency of silence because the person that has offended you and your pride, you watch them circle the drain as you sit and see their dismay. For me, there is a self-protective guard suit up that I love to see my offender be put to shame because of how they've criticized me, my ideas, my decisions, my acts, my words. What is that for you? Because oftentimes, the plan to protect our own self-pride involves slandering words and paying a personal price so we can get ahead. That we look out for me, myself, and I. That's how we relate to others. But may I offer also, sometimes, that also translates to our spiritual life, and it's how we relate to God. That we will say words in such a way that we justify ourselves as we slander others. And it may come in the form of, I'm not that bad. All right, what I have done is not that bad. In the Bible, we see a story in Luke 18 about um, Jesus talking about this idea of pride. And he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I'm not that bad in justifying ourselves by words of slander of others. And, and also, there might be this attempt to justify ourselves because of what we um, have given, what we have done. We, we build a case in light of what we have personally paid. God, I've earned your love because of this. In Matthew 19, there's a story of the a, a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit wealth? Or inherit eternal life, excuse me. And, and Jesus says, you keep all the commandments perfectly. And he says, I've done that. And Jesus says, one more thing, give away all you have and follow me. And, and he says, uh, it's noted that it says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great well, thinking we have deserved, because we have paid personally and kept personally uh, things that God's required of us. There's a pride in us that way. The plan to protect our self-pride comes through slanderous words of others that justify ourselves, and personal payments, maybe it's financial, maybe it's other things to make sure we get ahead because we are the most important of anyone else, all eyes on us. So how does it end up? We see that this story is uh, evolving. All right, we have an offendable pride. We have um, a self-protective nature when it comes to our pride. But we have this third idea of the the quenching of self-pride. Uh, in this chapter and following chapters also, uh, Haman will act in such a way that make sure that he gets acclaim and notoriety uh, and acknowledgement because his self-pride is starving. And at the end of it, we see that he goes to the king and the king uh, rubber stamps. It, gives, it says it gives a signet ring. It's the green light. It's the approval. Haman's plan is, is uh, being enacted. His injured pride is being recovered. And it ends in a grim way, so we have to ask ourselves, as we wait in the tension of what will happen, how do things look different when it comes to our self-pride? How can things change? And for that uh, to be the case and be answered, we have to know what Haman was actually after. We have to know what he's after, and it's this. The only way that our self-pride will be quenched is when we don't just do away with it. Because actually our self-pride points to something that really does need to be met. It does not need to be done away with. In fact, the truth about pride is this. It's a malfunction. When we are starved, we are prideful. And when our need of not being acknowledged is starved, we're filled with pride. Because we want someone we think the world of to think the world of us. We want someone that we think the world of to think the world of us. And when that's not the case, of course we will think the world of us. We will look at ourselves uh, ruthlessly, tirelessly, sleeplessly. The beauty about the cross is that it tells us that Jesus has come for us. But it also tells us and shows us that he did it gladly. It's not just a sacrifice. It's a willing sacrifice. So that uh, when Satan, uh, like Haman, goes to the king and he says to God, God, there are people who are in this kingdom of yours that It's not profitable to you for you to have them around. They don't obey what you tell them to do. They don't love you even though you tell them to love you. It's actually better for you if they go away. And God says in response to that Haman-like offer by Satan, he says, I will give to the people exactly what they need. I'm not going to make them pay for it, but in fact, I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to give them what they need, which is through a bloodied cross, because it shows I think the world of them. Uh, The offensibility and the protective plan of Haman uh, was that he wanted blood. And he wanted blood, so he cast lots to figure out how and when he will kill the Israelites his enemy, his opponents. In John 19, we hear a story of the Roman guards killing Jesus, casting lots for his clothes as he's lying bloody on a cross. And that cross tells the people who think high with a superiority pride, it says to them, the malfunction of desiring to be thought of highly is something that I will give you and I'll fill that need, because I think the world of you. And it says to the people who have the inferiority sense of pride, come up, I will make you great. What's great about me will be true of you. The cross is nothing less than this, someone that we think the world of thinking the world of us. It meets a need, and doesn't do away with our pride, but it quenches the need. And it meets a need so that a quenched pride says I don't have to be offended because there's nothing else that I need. And I don't have to make a self-protective plan because I'm so safe and secure. And the cross says to us that the humility of Jesus changes us because it takes the eyes off of ourselves and puts it on him. Let's pray. Lord, we, in our pride, try to make a case for ourselves. And as we are about to sing, we need no other case than for Christ to go before your throne and make a case for us because it's through his blood that we have every need met. Everything that offers chaos and brings chaos is silenced. And the criticism of others fall away. We go from being offended to being filled up with love from our Father and from our Savior. And we go from making self-protective plans following Christ in his humility. Holy Spirit, would you remind us this day, the cross is a reminder in the exhibition of this. Someone we think the world of thinks the world of us. We pray in Christ's name.